Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in for Rebecca Shear, and today we're hitting the road, putting D.C. in the rearview mirror and heading out to the more pastoral parts of our region with a show we're calling Town and Country. We'll put on our rain gear and hike through a swamp that's home to all sorts of salamanders. The highlights for me was definitely turning over a rock and finding four long-tailed salamanders. And we'll hear about one town's victory in its long-running effort to save its elementary school. Once you start taking away stuff from the small villages, you start losing the villages. We become just a pass-through on a road. Plus, we'll look at crime and punishment, as practiced in 19th century Virginia. And we'll head even further back in time as we visit an eastern shore community whose ferry has been running for 331 years. We're standing on the bridge of the ferry. doesn't get any prettier. The sun's shining, 75 degrees. But first, we're going to head into southern Maryland and into the farmlands and marshlands around the Wicomico River. Now, we should state, for the record, that there are two Wicomico Rivers in Maryland, one on the eastern shore and one on the western shore. And it's the latter river that we're talking about today, the one that reaches into St. Mary's County off of the Potomac River. It's the landscape where Nancy Wolf has spent just about all of her life. She's the last member of a family of farmers, a family that has watched as Maryland farmland has disappeared and young people have chosen other careers. Wolf says she knows that gradual change is inevitable for Southern Maryland. She wants to do her part to make sure some of the open spaces she grew up with stay, well, open. Her family used to own farmland in Clinton, Maryland, but now that land is on the verge of being developed as the D.C. suburbs continue to expand, a site that she says will break her heart. It's why she's taking the 1,600 acres her family left her in southern Maryland and turning it over to the newly created Wicomico Valley Foundation of Southern Maryland, a foundation she started less than a year ago. I met her outside on a breezy day near the banks of Allen's Fresh, a tributary of the Wicomico River. Well, we're in a marshy area, the beginnings of the Wicomico River in Allen's Fresh. So while we have a lot of open water in front of us, we also have marsh across the river. This is actually considered technically Allen's Fresh Run. And a run is basically a a stream, depending on how far up it is. It could be very narrow that you jump across, and here you need to take a boat. What was your upbringing like? My father was a farmer. My grand, both sides of my grandparents were farmers. Uh, My mother's side of the family was from Clinton. My father's side of the family was in Brandywine although we're, we're now here in, in Charles and St. Mary's County now. So um, it's just been life on the farm. How did this whole process get started in your mind? Well, I already had the land. My brother and I, neither one of us had children. So I had to decide what's going to happen with this land that I have grown so very attached to. I'm being the sentimental one, you know. <laughs> so that's when I got the idea of the, the foundation, so that I would feel that it's protected, and I would know, even though, of course, once I'm dead, I won't know, won't be able to do anything, but I'll have some control over what happens to it, that I'll know it's not going to be a housing development. What do you hope uh, preserving this land and creating this foundation will do for people who are not, you know, in your family? What do you hope, what's your your goal, and and what do you uh, hope that the foundation can accomplish? Preserving the agricultural opportunities 
for everybody. We're, we're hoping that we may even partner with the University of Maryland's Institute of Applied Agriculture for educational purposes. And to give people in general the opportunity to come out and enjoy nature and wildlife and, and an open space that doesn't have something else, a, a house, you know, 200 feet away. Even that's a generous amount for some subdivisions, but some neighborhoods. Just open, keeping it in open space and a place for, for nature to be, you know, wildlife to be, have a, a, a preserve. When you drive around, um, you know, what is your, your home turf and you see a new housing development go up or some townhouses that on a, on a place that you used to know as a farm or farmland, how does that make you feel? Do you, do you get, you know, either regretful, angry? I don't get angry. I get more sad. Because I usually, especially if it's somebody whose farm I have visited, I, I have memories of the things we used to do there or the person associated with that farm. And I think, oh, what would so-and-so think if they could see their farm looking like this? Because the person frequently is dead by now. So, um, I, yeah, I do get kind of sad. And, and what do you think they, they would think? I mean, some of these, you know, friends and, and relatives that, that have moved on, have passed on, um, if they saw some of the development now, um, yeah, I mean, do you think that people would be surprised? You know, your parents, would they be surprised? Or, or, or do people, you know, around here kind of understand that that's what has to happen or, or not? I think they understand that that's, they feel like it's, it's going to happen. It's inevitable but it always makes them sad to see it happen. Um, my aunt, who lived on that farm in Clinton, she said she knew that farm was going to be developed, and my uncle too, for that matter, but she didn't want to be around to see it happen. And she is dead now, so she's not going to see it happen. But I will, and I'm going to cry. <laughs> so, and I haven't been back to look yet. But they also have not start, haven't started building yet either. But, but it's in the process of starting. Yeah. Yeah, they know how many lots they're going to have and the whole works. Yeah. Um, what makes you emotional? Just the memories? Well, I'm a sentimental person anyway. <laughs> so the memories and what it meant to the, the whole family, um, that farm in Clinton, my, I know my ancestors moved there in 1840. So because I am sentimental... You know, and I'm I'm into family history and genealogy, and and so that's that's part of the family story. That was Nancy Wolf, the founder of the Wicomico Valley Foundation of Southern Maryland. Do you or a member of your family work in agriculture? What do you see as the future of farming in our region? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at wamu metro. We head now to Brentsville, Virginia, the historic seat of Prince William County. For more than 70 years, from 1822 to 1894, the old jail there housed the county's murderers, arsonists, and horse thieves. But the building's history and the stories of the people it imprisoned were covered up over the years as the jail was repurposed as a school, a private home, and eventually a county office. Now workers are restoring the jail to its original 1822 appearance, and as Jacob Fenston tells us, the county plans to turn it into a museum telling the story of crime and punishment in antebellum Virginia. 
Inside the old brick building, it's cool, dark, and dusty. The interior walls have all been torn out, exposing termite-eaten timbers. Yeah, let's go on this side real quickly. I want to show you. Brendan Hannafin is showing me around. He's director of the Prince William County Preservation Office. This is actually a pretty cool view right here. We walk from the jailer's quarters into one of the old cells. You can see through to the second floor because we have the floors that have been taken out. And the, the ceiling joists for the second floor are burnt, charred timbers. This is evidence of an attempted escape more than 170 years ago, according to local volunteer historian Morgan Breeden, who's helping the county research the jail's history. It was a slave named Landon who was being held because he had tried uh, to run away. It was 1839, and he nearly burned his way to freedom. While he was in the, the cell, he asked uh, one of the jailers for a hot coal to light his pipe with which wasn't uncommon. But a few minutes later, the second floor was filling with smoke. The house was on fire. Landon had pushed the burning coal into a crack in the cell wall. He was actually uh, sentenced to be hanged. Brendan Hannafin says this jail's history is still relevant, and that's why the county is restoring the building. Crime and punishment in antebellum Virginia, or the South, or even in the United States at that time, revolved around a lot of issues that we, we still deal with today. The issue of race, for example, still looms over the criminal justice system, as does the issue of mental illness. The fact that uh, insane folks were kept here, they were jailed. That's a modern topic. That's something to talk about now. It may not be the most glorious history, Hannafin says, but it is worth preserving. It has some dark moments. American history, all history has some dark moments, but you should talk about them. It's, it's the best way to really not do them again. The restoration work is slow going. It started four years ago. First, workers gutted the interior, tearing out layers of drywall and plaster installed during the decades after the jail shut down in 1894. Fritz Korzendorfer is the construction coordinator. The big part is is to be able to take everything down without all of it collapsing down onto it. During the demolition, workers uncovered all sorts of little treasures, things that may have belonged to prisoners. A pair of leather shoes. Buttons, marbles, bullets. We found an old stove. A porcelain range from the early 1900s buried in what was probably an old cellar. Also buried deep under the floor, lots and lots of bones. There was all kinds of chicken bones in here. Possibly leftovers from construction workers almost 200 years ago. You know, they might have come in, sat on the wall, ate lunch, and then they just buried it. So carpenters in the early 19th century liked chicken for lunch. What do we know about the men and women who spent time behind bars here? But it starts off, you know, again, I again am inquiring about you and my own situation in jail. Uh, I, I have a real hard. This is this script is particularly bad. This is an old letter historian Morgan Breeden found for sale on eBay. Every square inch is covered with a desperate scrawl. Is that my my mention to you? <laughs> I can't read it either. Yeah, but 1848, December 15th, 1848, and written from the Brentsville jail. You, you can clearly see that it says Brentsville here. My dear mother. My dear mother. And, and you don't know um, why he was in jail? or We do not know why he was in jail. Uh, we don't have any other records uh, of him being in jail. But they do have a list, actually, a thick three-ring binder filled with the names and crimes of the men and women who did time here. They were there for highway robbery, house burning, intent to kill, attempted murder, break and enter. Horse stealing. Horse stealing, yeah. The list covers some 70 years of crime in Prince William County, and it goes on and on. Poisoning, debt, 
contempt. But the list isn't complete. During the Civil War, the Brentsville jail and adjoining courthouse were occupied alternately by Confederate and Union troops. Many of the court records were lost. Now, Breeden and other local historians are piecing together this history. Some of it will go into the displays in the renovated jail, which may open to the public as soon as next year. I'm Jacob Fenston. Care to check out the rehab work at the Brentsville Jail for yourself? We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, the battle over the fate of small schools in Virginia. They're even talking about dividing our kids up, which is to me unthinkable because that's all that they know is their friends. That's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're getting out of D.C. to bring you stories from small towns across Maryland and Virginia. In just a bit, we'll go really rural with a trek through a far-flung swamp that's home to more salamanders than people. But first, we're going to go out on the coast. As we bring you our regular segment about life on Maryland's eastern shore and in coastal Delaware. This week, Brian Russo introduces us to Dr. Mark Sear, the pastor in charge of St. Paul's by the Sea Episcopal Church in Ocean City, Maryland. St. Paul's was hit by tragedy last November when a man set himself on fire and walked into the church's rectory. In the process, he took his own life and that of the church's minister, Reverend David Dingwall. Brian Russo stopped by St. Paul's recently to talk with Reverend Sear about what it's been like to lead the congregation through this period of mourning. It was very somber, and people were um, were really not sure of who they were or where they were going. Um, they had lost their leader, and so they were looking for some stability, some sense of uh, direction. Of course, whenever there's a, a tragedy, not only does it, you know, affect the everyday, the day-to-day, the mm-hmm. human, just your personal relationships. But you would think that for a church, it would also challenge faith and their belief in God and belief that God has a plan for mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. How did you help members of this congregation sort of work through those questions? Well, actually, we're still working through those questions. And those are ever-present, you know, because in life we have good times and bad times. I mean, tragedy happens to everybody. But something so drastic as, you know, having the rectory burn down and, the, and your priest die is, is major. And so it affects people on m- multiple levels because you, a lot of people here were friends of Father David. And he was also their spiritual director. 
You mentioned the the rectory in, in the front where the fire took place. I know there was a recent decision or a vote or um, a collaborative, you know, effort to decide on what to do with it, whether to rebuild or whether to tear down. The decision, from what I understand, has been made to essentially tear it down. Mm-hmm. Why did the congregation think that it was time to to start anew and to take that down? Was it part of the healing process? Yes, it's absolutely part of the healing process. I don't think that most of the people consciously recognize that uh, when the decision was made. In actuality, the, con- the congregation was split about 50-50 for people who wanted to renovate and rebuild what we had and tear down and build something new. The decision to tear down and, and build something new was pretty much uh, reached by the leadership of the parish, the vestry, because in, dis- in the discussion of what to do and, and how to proceed, it was recognized that there would be a lot more options available for us as far as how to configure the space, what to do, and to create a space that was more what the parish needed in order to fulfill the ministries that we're involved in. Putting it back the way it was, rebuilding that same rectory with the same rooms, the same configuration, it wasn't working good before, and so it wouldn't have been a good use of the space. For you personally, were you hesitant at all knowing what a tough time this congregation was going through when you were offered the priest-in-charge role? Did you have a moment of, of questioning whether or not you were the guy for the job? And I guess, how did you get past that? Uh, yeah, I took this job with trepidation. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a mighty calling to come into such a situation with people um, who are very attached to their rector and who ha- are dealing with the tragedy and the loss. And I wondered if if I should take it. And yet it was very exciting, and I knew that I could deal with it. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was uh, had been given the... Um, that I have the, the right gifts that God has given me in, in my experience in the past and that... Uh, when I first came here as Supply, I just developed a relationship immediately with the people and knew that this was a special place that I would fit in and it would feel good. That was Dr. Mark Sear, the minister at St. Paul's-by-the-Sea Episcopal Church in Ocean City, speaking with Coastal reporter Brian Russo. We've got more of their conversation on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story is about a tiny elementary school in a tiny community in western Loudoun County, Virginia. It's called Aldi Elementary and is located in an unincorporated town of the same name. With 134 students, Aldi is one of the smaller public schools in our region. Parents love the community feel of the school, and students say that its size makes it easier to navigate than a bigger school. But for years, Aldi has been under the axe as the school district looks to find ways to cut spending. This year, the school board went further than ever in making plans for the elementary's closing. But as Lauren Ober reports, Aldi parents are fighting back and winning, at least for now. Andrew Sutphin is a third grader at Aldi Elementary. He thinks he has a pretty good handle on what makes his school special. It's nice and small, and the kids are all nice. And every once in a while, it's just fun. It's my favorite school of all time. Aldi Elementary might be Andrew's favorite school of all time, 
But until just a couple of days ago, it was also something else. It was a school in jeopardy. In order to close a $38 million budget gap, the county school board was weighing whether to close Aldi, as well as Hamilton, Hillsborough, and Lincoln Elementary schools. Combined, these schools educate just under 500 students, far fewer than the average elementary school in Loudoun, which serves about 650. School board chairman Eric Hornberger suggested the closures would save the district about $2 million. The reality is now we have several things happening. One is we have a budget issue that we have to address. The second thing is we have been watching as a school board for the last several years a continual decline in elementary school population in western Loudoun. But on Tuesday, the school board voted 6-3 to three to keep the small schools open, at least for now. Aldi Elementary will soon begin the process of applying to become a public charter school. Next door to Aldi, the tiny Middleburg Elementary, population 50 students, also recently became a charter school to save itself from the chopping block. Whether to close these quaint community schools isn't a new issue for the county. The school board has grappled with the question for years. And every time the proposal comes up, people raise the same objections. Students won't get the same personalized education, the community will lose a critical institution, and the rural foundation of the town will erode. And... If you close Aldi School, think about it. All the great teachers there won't have jobs that would be sad. That's then six-year-old Rachel Hollinger speaking at a hearing on the same issue in 2009. She went on to implore the school board. There are other ways to find money you need. Please don't close Aldi School. Thank you. Five years ago, the Loudoun County Public School Board found a way to keep Aldi open. But Eric Hornberger says it's getting harder and harder to justify accommodating rural places like Aldi, especially when enrollment is declining. Growth is happening in the eastern part of the county in places like Sterling and Ashburn, the region Hornberger represents. That growth will likely march west, but school board members wonder whether it's enough to warrant keeping small schools open. It's not a matter of if these schools will close. It's only a matter of when. If that seems harsh, that's because county residents elected Hornberger and his fellow board members to make tough decisions based on what's best for the majority. There are trade-offs. No matter what the school board does in its reconciling its budget, there are trade-offs. And there will be people who are unhappy. Stacy Sutphin, Andrew's mom and the president of the Aldi PTA, is one of many parents who rallied around the school, hanging banners around the town that read Save Aldi and crunching the numbers for alternative solutions. She disagreed with the claim that closing Aldi would save the district money. They are suggesting by closing the four schools it will save them $2 million dollars. In fact, it could end up costing more. We're educating below the county average. Our building is paid for and our land's paid for. So that's where our fight comes in. In the end, the school board agreed with her. After listening to the testimony of nearly 180 supporters of the four small schools, board members, including Jill Turgeon, who represents Aldi's region, voted to spare them. School board chair Eric Hornberger voted against the schools. For parents like Cheryl Hutchison, who sent four children to Aldi Elementary, the fight was about more than just the school. It was about what the shuttering, should it come to pass, would do to Aldi. In a town where many people still live down long dirt lanes lined with trees, the community school is its beating heart. 
close it and what's left of the town? Once you start taking away stuff from the small villages, you start losing the villages. We become just a pass-through on a road. The town could disappear, and I would hate to see that happen. For now, Hutchison's fears have been allayed, but the battle to keep rural Loudoun intact wages on. I'm Lauren Ober. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Brunswick, Maryland and Waterford, Virginia. My name is Kathy Heinsen and I am 50 years old. I live in Brunswick, Maryland. Brunswick is a small town that is located at the confluence of the state lines of Maryland, Virginia and West Virginia, right where the Potomac River meets the edges of all of those states. It was founded by an Indian trader in 1720. Brunswick actually was not first known as Brunswick. It's had many names. Initially, it was called Coxman's Rest. And finally, it ended up with the name Berlin prior to the late 1800s because there were a lot of German immigrants. When the B&O Railroad came in in the 1890s, one of the officials suggested a fancier name and came up with the name Brunswick. Brunswick was called the Paris on the Potomac because the railroad was so active and everything thriving at that time that you got big band acts coming through here. And then you had lots of merchandise coming from New York, so the latest fashions. And then it hit a bit of a decline in the 1950s and 60s when the B&O Railroad started to pull out. We still have quite an active set of galleries and antique shops and small-town cafes. My name is Ed Good. I'm 67 years old. I live in the little village of Waterford, which is approximately 47 miles west of Washington, and have lived there since 1993. Waterford consists of about... 100 households, approximately 200 to 250 residents, and the village was settled in 1733 by Quakers who came south from Pennsylvania. During the Civil War, the village of Waterford voted not to secede from the Union, and they sided with the Union against the Confederacy, which was difficult because they were and are in the state of Virginia. In the 1970s, Waterford was declared a National Historic Landmark by the Department of Interior, one of the few towns in America where the entire town sits within a National Historic Landmark. My favorite part about living in Waterford is that when I go home in the evening and head back toward the village, it really is like driving backward in time. We heard from Kathy Heinsen in Brunswick and Ed Good in Waterford. If you think your region should be a part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
time now to go through the Metro Connection mailbox. Or, okay, clicking through our email box to read some of your recent notes to the show. Our April show about Silver Spring inspired this message from Gail. I am listening to your excellent program on Silver Spring in which you document the flight from downtown Silver Spring and its slow but steady redevelopment. But what was conspicuously missing was any reference to the racial history of Silver Spring. Most older suburbs in America today, like Silver Spring, are becoming resegregated. It would have been very informative if a program was developed to tell the unique racial history of Silver Spring. A few weeks ago, Rebecca Shear did a story about the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington and its plans to create a new museum dedicated to the history of D.C.'s Jewish community. In that story, she described how the Addis Israel Synagogue was picked up and moved back in 1969, and that prompted this note from listener David. Yesterday, while driving to work, I hit the 88.5 button only to hear the last 10 seconds of your program on the moving of the Jewish Synagogue. Hearing your broadcast once again reminded me that even now, Washington, D.C. is still in some ways an overgrown small town. Just two days ago, I was visiting my neighbor, Bill Patrum, who is 86 and lives just across the street from my home in Fairfax City. Mr. Patrum was one of the preeminent movers of the historic buildings in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. He moved the Jewish temple that day in 1969, and he was telling me the story of that move just this past weekend. He has a large aerial photograph of the move mounted on the wall in his home. He gave me a reprint of an article from the Washington Post at that time in which he is quoted. It is indeed a small world. If you'd like to comment on a recent story or suggest a topic for us to cover on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. A message to you, Rudy. A message to you, Rudy. A message to you, Rudy. In a minute, we'll put on our hiking boots and head out in the wild in search of salamanders. Scoop at anything. Get some leaf litter in there. And then sort through the leaf litter. It's a mucky mess, but oh, look at this. Very first try. Stay with us. It's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and today we're getting out of Dodge and heading out to some of the more rural parts of our region with a show we're calling Town and Country. And there are many places around these parts that are more rural or remote than the spot we're headed to next, Finzel Swamp in western Maryland. Lauren Landau bought some rain boots and went to Finzel earlier this week on Earth Day to search for creatures that thrive in wet, swampy spots. Salamanders. It's overcast and drizzling when I arrive at Finzel Swamp. It's a perfect day if you're hunting for salamanders. So we're going to start off in this small pond here over on the west side. Deborah Landau, no relation, is the conservation ecologist at the Maryland, D.C. chapter of the Nature Conservancy, which protects this land. 
this is a wonderful place to visit. There's lots of really nice trails. It's very accessible. And right by the parking area, we've got this nice little pond with these wonderful trees around it. So it's nice and cool. And we'll see what we can find. Among those taking part in today's hunt is Kim Terrell, a wildlife biologist at the Smithsonian National Zoo. She says Finzel Swamp and the Appalachian Mountains in general are a hot spot for amphibians like salamanders. We have more salamander diversity here in Appalachia than anywhere else in the world. And a lot of those species belong to the plethodontid family, which are the lungless salamanders, which we will definitely find today. Do you know what percentage that is? How many of the various kinds of known salamanders live in this region? It's about 14%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for any one area, that's huge. Kim tells us to grab a net and see what we can find. Scoop at anything. Get some leaf litter in there and then sort through the leaf litter. It's a mucky mess, but oh, look at this. Very first try. This is crawling around amongst the dirt and the leaf litter is a olive green salamander with bright red spots. And this is an eastern newt. These guys are amazing little creatures for a number of reasons. They are one of the only animals in the world that can regrow bits of eye and brain tissue. And because of this, they are a major model for biomedical research for tissue regeneration in humans. Kim is excited by this early find, but she's got more salamanders she's hoping to see today. What I'm really excited about are long-tailed salamanders, which are here, and they're absolutely gorgeous. And that is my mission for today, is to show you a long-tailed salamander. One salamander we're unlikely to see on this expedition is a species known as the hellbender. So hellbenders are incredible salamanders. They are the largest salamander in North America. They can grow up to almost two and a half feet long. And they used to be pretty common in Maryland, but now they are barely hanging on only in Garrett County in extreme western Maryland. The major issue that this species is facing is sedimentation or the accumulation of dirt in their streams. So because they live in the water and they breathe through their skin, they need really clean, clear water. If the water is too sedimented or too filled with dirt, it makes it difficult for them to breathe. She says other salamanders are also struggling to survive as the climate changes. When the region becomes warmer and drier, a lot of these species will lose a lot of habitat. And especially for salamanders that live on the top of a mountain, they can't move up in elevation. You know, they have nowhere left to go. And I understand that some of these salamanders aren't just losing their habitats, they're losing body mass. Can you go into that a bit? Right. So there was a study that just came out out of Karen Lips's lab at University of Maryland um, showing that salamanders have become smaller over the past couple of decades as the climate has warmed. And the theory behind that is that as their habitats became warmer, they became smaller in order to conserve energy because salamanders are cold-blooded or ectothermic, so they can't control their body temperature. So as their environment becomes warmer, their bodies become warmer and their metabolism increases. So a possible way to conserve your energy is to have a smaller body. After finding a few more red-spotted newts, we ditch the nets and start flipping over rocks and logs, looking for moist spots that might harbor salamanders. 
After a few tries, Kim hits the jackpot. After a brief, frantic struggle, Kim extracts the yellow salamanders from the muddy water and even finds a few nickel-sized egg sacs. Later, when we decide it's time to head back, she's still glowing. The highlights for me was definitely turning over a rock and finding four long-tailed salamanders all right on top of each other. I was hoping to find one today, and we got four, so that was pretty incredible. She says she could spend all day hunting for salamanders, and with the biodiversity that Finzel Swamp has to offer, every excursion is a new adventure. I'm Lauren Landau. To see photos from Lauren's trip to Finzel Swamp or find out why 2014 is being called the Year of the Salamander, head to our website, metroconnection.org. We'll leave Finzel Swamp behind now and head a couple hundred miles across Maryland to the eastern shore community of Oxford. That's where you'll find a ferry service that was established a long, long time ago, back in 1683 to be specific. At the time, the ferry was designed to move horses and men between Oxford and Bellevue across the Tread Avon River. During the boom years of the seafood industry, it also took cannery workers back and forth to their jobs. These days, the ferry caters more to tourists than to commuters, people from places like Washington, D.C. or Baltimore, who come to Oxford to enjoy the quiet side of life on the Chesapeake Bay. Our very own managing producer, Tara Boyle, climbed on board the ferry recently to meet its owners and sent us this audio postcard. Engines on. Hi, I'm Judy Bixler. I'm president and owner of the Oxford Bellevue Ferry. Captain Tom Bixler, one of the also the owners of the Oxford Ferry. We started originally in 1683 when the county called upon Richard Royston uh, to provide a ferry service for this area. That was back in 1683, before America came about. So we've been around for a long time. This will actually be 331 years for the back for the Oxford Bellevue Ferry. What it was was a barge that they used to scull which is basically rowing, and or pulled across by rope. Unfortunately, in those days, it was people that were uh, um, probably slaves at that point. The area was utilized, this ferry was utilized because it was a home port for the eastern shore of the United States, and the tobacco industry was shipping lots of tobacco and farm products at that point. The ferry has been owned by a number of different people over the years, but there were a number of women, actually, who owned the ferry. And one of the famous women was Judith Bennett, and she actually outlived three husbands running the ferry. So I often tease my husband, Tom, that he better be careful, (laughs) since I'm Judy and she was Judy. (laughs) He better beware. Today's one-foot chance of rain through the night. The marine forecast for Chesapeake Bay from Pools Island to San We're standing on the bridge of the ferry. doesn't get any prettier. The sun's shining, 75 degrees. We overlook the uh, harbor of Oxford and, you know, the Tredavon River. And then uh, we get to enjoy all the wildlife and all the folks that come to visit us. So what could be better? Tonight, south winds 
15 to 20 knots. With we get lots of eagles, lots of osprey. Um, we've had numerous instances where there was actually uh, dolphins, porpoises, swimming in the river. Uh, one day Judy actually had uh, about 75 of them surrounding her, which was an odd experience, you know, way up the river like this inside the bay. But um, there is always lots of ducks and geese and, you know, many, many things roaming around. We've actually had deer swimming across the river, so there, there's no lack of wildlife. In order to remove our gate, we use a, bit, a large nail that holds the gate in place, and then we, it's counterbalanced, so it doesn't, it's, it's quite tall. It's almost 25 feet long, but it's not that heavy because it's counterbalanced. So I can move the gate without too much trouble. Unless the wind is really strong, then sometimes I really have to put some effort into it. Tom was involved in working on a ferry when he was in college. It was his summer job, and he said that someday when we retired, this is what he'd like to do, own a ferry. And I think if you ask people back when I was growing up if they ever thought I'd be a ferry boat captain, they would have laughed at you. But it's really a spectacular job. We meet people from all over the world. Um, and we actually came here, moved to this area in order to own the ferry. We are the oldest privately held ferry in the United States. Um, there is one other ferry, a, a lovely little operation up in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, which precedes us by about 13 years, but um, they've had the great luxury of being subsidized by the state of Connecticut. We've had to make this thing work with, you know, just us. The ferry is very stable. Um, and it, people don't understand that actually it gets more stable the more weight it has aboard it. They get out here when the waves are running and they're saying, oh, is it going to be bad? Am I going to get seasick? The ferry is really runs along very smoothly. You don't feel the motion. It's, it's a wonderful vessel and you feel very secure aboard it, but it is a responsibility. So we're always on guard, paying attention. And then we are, we're dancing with other sailboats. We're running with the watermen. It's kind of like an orchestra out here. We go in circles around each other and it's, it's a neat experience. It really is something very special. That was Judy and Tom Bixler speaking with Metro Connection's Tara Boyle. If you want to see what the ferry looks like or check out its schedule for this season, we've got more info on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll wrap up today's show with Bookend. Our monthly look at the local literary scene. In this edition, we sit down with Alex Myers, the author of a new novel called Revolutionary. Now, while most novelists develop a deep connection to their protagonist, Alex Myers' link to Deborah Sampson, the heroine of Revolutionary, is especially strong. Deborah Sampson, a real historical figure, was a woman who dressed as a man to fight as a soldier for the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Sampson's gender-bending story struck a chord with Myers the very first time he heard it when he was a little girl. That's right. Alex Myers used to be Alice Myers. In fact, Myers, who started talking openly about his transgender identity in his teens, went on to become Harvard University's first openly transgender student. Myers moved to D.C. last year and now studies at Georgetown and works here at American University. We met on a sidewalk bench just off of Connecticut Avenue in Northwest, not far from Myers' apartment. 
I knew the story from when I was very young. It's a story that my grandmother told me, but it's not ever something I ever imagined writing a novel on. I was in an MFA program. I was writing a lot of short stories, um, and I decided i got to take advantage of this MFA program and try to write a novel. Um, and when I thought about what story I would want to tell, I thought, i got to tell a story that I know deeply and that I can spend a lot of time with. And I thought back to Deborah Sampson's story, and I kind of have personal connections to it, not only because of my grandmother telling me the story, um, but because of my own life. And so I felt that it would be interesting on many different levels, the history and her character, as well as um, the resonances about gender. You know, you're very open about your history and the, the jacket flap of this book you talk about. You were raised as Alice, right? Mm-hmm. And you've been a transgender activist for most of your adult life, even going back back to it as a teenager I'm wondering in terms of you know when you think about Deborah Sampson and the gender issues that she's dealing with back you know hundreds of years ago how similar is it to your story and and how different is it 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 was a question that I wrestled with a lot as I was researching and and writing the book because I don't think that our stories are all that similar Deborah ran away from home at 23 um, she disguised herself as a man and to fight in a in the war. I think that gender at her time was very different than gender at our time. Um, and for me, I, I always felt from when I was very little that I was a guy, and that's how I wanted to live. And I just had to figure out how to do it. I don't know, and I don't think I can ever know that that's what Deborah wanted. But I do get the sense from how she lived her life, both as a woman and as a man, that what she really wanted was to be free and independent. And that was not permitted to women in 1782 Massachusetts. And so I think that's why she chose to live as a man. However, I I do think I have, in my life story is pertinent to hers and and I can relate to her because of the similarities of what it's like to try to pass as a man. Um, And just sort of the physicality of it, as well as the um, moments that would be psychologically confusing. You're trying to negotiate this world, this very, for her, a very masculine world of the army, um, but she's never had any uh, experience of, of what it's like to live with men. She's always been a woman up to that point. So that's something that I could relate to her about. I'm curious about the choice to really talk about your life in relation to the book or be open with it, even on the, the jacket flap. Did you at all worry that people wouldn't judge this book on its merits and they'd only judge it on, you know, oh, this is a transgender activist writing about this interesting story about gender and they wouldn't actually pay attention to the, your skill as a writer? It kind of cuts both ways in some sense with, with um, my novel and my being transgender, which is that some people might not pick it up because it's written by a transgender person. They'll say, oh, that's going to be political, that's going to have commentary that I'm not interested in. I just want a good story. And other people will pick it up because it's by a transgender person, and they might not necessarily care about the writing. I think, though, that the book would stand on its own, you know, written as it is, whether you knew anything about the author or not. And that that was the primary goal, was just to write a good novel. <laughs> so did you think at all about, you know, just putting this out Alex Myers, no bio. Let me just put this book out there and see how people react. Um, no, I, I didn't. I didn't ever think of that um, or publishing under a pseudonym or something like that. I mean, again, these days in publishing, the author's story be, often becomes part of of the package of the novel, um, and people want that. When I go and, and do book readings now, it's very funny. People, the first thing people want to know is which parts are true and which parts aren't true. And after they, they, they ask that question, they want to know about my relationship to the book. I think they'd ask that if I, even if I weren't transgender. I think they'd say, why did you tell this story? And suppose I were a woman and I had served in the military and that's why I told the story. Well, that would be the point of interest to them. So the fact that I'm transgender is just my point of interest. But I think there could be many angles that an author could come at this story and have relevant life experience to bring to the composition of the novel. Transgender issues and issues of, I guess, sexual preference are 
you know, a very hot topic in our country right now because the country's changing so much right now. You've been an activist for a long time and are, and are unafraid to call yourself that. Do you feel a responsibility to have your fiction play that role as well? I, I guess I do um, in some ways, although I certainly have written a lot of stories that have nothing to do with gender or gender identity. I really I look at myself as an, as an advocate for transgender rights and transgender identity and it's oddly enough in many ways I advocate that just by living a normal life and then going out and, and, and being out as transgender um, I came out in the late um, mid late 90s and that was a time when transgender was still a very new term it had been popularized in the early 90s um, and people really regarded trans as freak um, and Part of what I have sought to do by living as an out transgender person is to just normalize the category and um, and be a, a good person, a good neighbor, a, you know, a good teacher, um, a good citizen, and and all of that is transgressive because I am transgender. Um, so I do I like I seek any opportunity to speak about or write about um, gender identity because I feel it's something that um, people are curious about and people don't under, often don't understand. That was author Alex Myers speaking with me about his new book, Revolutionary. You can hear more of our conversation and a clip of Myers reading a scene from Revolutionary on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Lauren Ober, Lauren Landau, Tara Boyle, and Brian Russo. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be breaking the mold. We'll check out a program designed to bust through glass ceilings in the world of technology. We'll find out why several local universities are trying to teach college kids how to be philanthropists. And we'll go underground to tour a tunnel designed to be a game changer in how D.C. deals with its waste. The tunneling industry is a very niche group. We're like gypsies. We all go from different places to places. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.